Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Podcast. I'm Ashley Mueller. This week's episode explores some of the latest global issues affecting peace, security, and international cooperation. As the global arms trade continues to soar, efforts towards disarmament have become more urgent. We speak with Mr. Brian Wood, Manager of Arms Control, Security Trade and Human Rights with Amnesty International. We discuss the creation and evolution of the Arms Trade Treaty. Brian Wood, thank you so much for joining us here today with the GCSP. You have worked with Amnesty International, a very important organization dealing with human rights. How do you explain the relationship between human rights and the control of the arms trade? Well, f- many years ago, uh, in the, 19, the beginning of the 1980s, Amnesty International movement uh, passed a policy that uh, they would oppose military, security, police transfers, as they call them, from one country to another that contribute to serious violations of human rights. So that came from the worldwide members and uh, it took some years for the legal department and the leaders of the movement to decide how to put that into practice in the organization because it's an organization that you know does evidence-based advocacy so it had to put in place the research and the policy and training in order to do that properly and I was a member of staff from 1991 and uh, I had uh, come from southern Africa and in fact uh, I was very deeply involved in the anti-apartheid movement there and uh, working with the Namibians to try to get their independence. So I had come from that perspective and I started uh, uh, working on this issue uh, initially on the transfer of equipment that's used for torture and then that spread to work on small arms and small arms and light weapons. So I was at the beginning of the process where the United Nations began to set up a program of action uh, to prevent the illicit trade in small arms and light weapons. And so soon after that, uh, I met with a few non-governmental colleagues uh, from small organizations at the Amnesty headquarters and we decided that we would try to introduce the idea of a, of a binding treaty. So what we did was we thought we'd start in the European Union since the European Union already had some policy on, on that and uh, we received a bit of help from lawyers at universities in the UK. So we floated a proposal and it found its way to Oscar Arias, the Nobel Prize winner and former president of Costa Rica. And Don Oscar, as he's fondly called, uh, called us to a meeting in the United States along with some other Nobel Peace Laureates. As you know, Amnesty is a Nobel Peace Laureate. And we put more work into drafting this text and consulted lawyers again. We came up with a, a uh, proposal called a Framework Convention 
on international arms transfers. So Costa Rica floated that in the General Assembly. And, well, it didn't receive much reaction. So we thought, okay, what we need to do is constructively engage in the capitals around the world and organize a multi-NGO campaign. So in 2003, Amnesty International and Oxfam International and the International Action Network on Small Arms, which was lots of smaller NGOs, all got together and launched this campaign called Control Arms. And uh, initially, we just had some support for the idea of an arms trade treaty from some small countries. In addition to Costa Rica, it was Mozambique and I think Cambodia. In fact, countries that had been torn apart by the misuse of arms and the proliferation of arms. But as it began to snowball and became a popular idea, some larger countries began to get involved. And for example, Finland, Ireland, the Netherlands, uh, countries like that, Sweden. So we had these meetings in the UK and Helsinki and then Dar es Salaam, a lot of African countries came. And uh, soon after that, we had a breakthrough because the UK government decided that they would support the idea. Of course, the details had to be settled, and that was what started happening um, around about 2006, 2007. Meetings began to take place within the European Union. The idea was floated in the other regional organizations, and uh, eventually six governments brought a resolution to the General Assembly and that was passed in 2010. It was agreed that we'd have a negotiation within the United Nations. Of course, um, not all governments were on board. So there was initially a group of governmental experts that had to try and thrash out the, you know, at least some of the detail. They reported back and then it opened up into a, what's called an open-ended working group of the United Nations where all member states can attend if they want. And so from then on, there began to be a lot of ideas and input, and the Secretary General invited states to put proposals. And so it became the largest ever consultation that the United Nations had ever had on an issue. So by uh, 2012, there were some serious deliberations and negotiations. Uh, some of the big powers were a bit skeptical uh, uh, but once President Obama was elected into office, we, we began to get more support from the United States, which then brought a lot of other uh, countries that were being cautious, brought them in. So the final negotiating conference in 2012 almost reached consensus. And then the General Assembly had to reconvene the meeting in 2013 and finally the General Assembly adopted the treaty text and that's what we have today. So the civil society movement, which is very mixed, lots of different types of groups, peace groups, church groups, women's groups, environmental 
arms control groups, all sorts of uh, different groups joined together and played actually a very big part in the process and will continue to do so. And uh, people like myself try to encourage the colleagues in the non-governmental movement to be constructively engaged and to, you know, respect uh, the right of states to self-defense and therefore to acquire the means for self-defense and their duty to protect their populations and enforce the law. So it's, it's not a movement that is against the arms trade. It's a movement that wants responsible arms trade. So within that understanding, there's a lot of interactions. There are, there are, there's a lot of research that goes on, policy developments, and mutual assistance uh, in many parts of the world. Yes, and of course, the civil society organizations played a very active role in initiating the treaty, in negotiating the treaty, and now they are recognized as a partner also in the implementation of the treaty. They are invited to the regular meetings of states' parties in Geneva, but sometimes one may have the impression that there is some frustration because states' parties, governments seem to give more attention to the procedural aspects, institutional aspects, reporting, etc. Maybe not so much focused on what's happening in reality in conflict areas where there's a lot of controversy about some exports to some countries in the Middle East, which are actually used in conflict and, in fact, on civilians. So we have this impression now that there is frustration, this lack of dialogue about the actual implementation of the treaty. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, uh, it's true that uh, there are strong um, debates, uh, there are different points of view, Governments have access to their own national security information. Uh, Non-governmental organizations don't, but the non-governmental organizations collate information from around the world, so sometimes they've got something in addition to say. And, of course, it includes uh, humanitarian aid organizations that are working on the ground and human rights or, you know, large human rights organizations are working on the ground. So they're dealing with the impact of armed conflict and uh, the violation, uh, sometimes the very serious violation or even crimes against humanity on the ground. So they have uh, that perspective they bring to the proceedings of the Conference of States Parties of the Arms Trade Treaty, which has several working groups. And, um, you know, it's still a very new process. The treaty, which is actually far more in a very short space of time. I remember some very senior diplomats telling me that it would take 10 years for the treaty to come into force. Um, and uh, actually it was less than two years it was in force. So there's quite a lot of momentum behind the treaty, but there are uh, not many states, in, for example, in the Asia region and the, the Middle East, North Africa region. Uh, there's far more in uh, Europe, in the Americas, and in significant parts of Africa and Oceania. So one of the considerations is that governments want to just go slowly, step by step, because they want states that have been, if you like, sitting on the fence to come inside the house 
and get to know what the treaty is all about. The other thing is that the terms of the treaty are sometimes debatable in themselves. What do they mean? The treaty doesn't have uh, definitions as such. So quite a lot of the provisions of the treaty are interpreted from the definitions of other treaties and other bodies of international law. And so this is a big challenge, especially for the non-governmental organizations, to learn the legal lexicon, if, if you like. The governments usually have their law offices, but even then there's a lot of different types of law that is within the arms trade treaty umbrella. So international humanitarian law, international human rights law, the law that falls under the United Nations Charter, there's international customary law, international criminal law, trade law, and, you know, weapons uh, prohibitions as well. So there's a lot of technical, uh, legal and other technical issues that have to be worked through and limited amounts of time, limited amounts of money. So, you know, we're seeing the birth of something that hopefully will become much bigger and more effective as time proceeds. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Conference of States Parties agrees some guidelines in order to assist states with uh, interpreting it. Uh, there's also a lot of work going on to help developing countries build capacity to implement the treaty. My final question to you is, uh, you are a regular contributor to our training courses at the GCSP. How do you assess the impact of this kind of training to improve the capacities of officials to implement the arms trade treaty? Well, I think what the Geneva Center for Security Policy does in training officials on the arms trade treaty issues is of a very high standard. I think it's hugely beneficial from having participated as a, as a facilitator for some years now. And I've spoken with most of the participants over the years and uh, they are extremely positive about the course and the materials. So I think this institute is, is, is doing a, a very, very fine job. It's not the only one that's doing capacity building training, but it's certainly one of the leading places to come and learn about the arms trade treaty. That's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Mr. Brian Wood for joining us. Listen to us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify, and on SoundCloud. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>